This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. Together with Sharak Kutan, we critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena the better to understand how society works. Each week, we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. We are going to talk about activism and youths today, particularly the rise of activism in digital media and its broader social repercussions. And to do that with us, we have two, I guess, young activists to share their thoughts. First and foremost, we have Natusha Naidu. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you are currently a second year student at Nottingham, majoring in international relations, correct? Yep, that's right. And we also have Lim Yu Wei. Welcome uh, to the show. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and you are a politician, is that correct to say? Yes, I okay. am. <laughs> With the Democratic Action Party. Correct. And how long have you been in the party? Just slightly over one and a half years now. Uh, okay, yeah. cool. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what led you to that decision as well. Like, you know, what made you from being aware of issues to wanting to get into the system and perhaps the challenges therein. But let's begin with a general question first. How popular is activism now among youths today? Is it something that's very common or is it just something that the cool kids do or the outcasts do? I mean, I don't know what the situation is like anymore, but it seems that there's a lot of purchase, right? When uh, Social purchase, that when you're an activist or you take position on social issues, it resonates now. It's not just isolated within a small circle of students. So give us a picture of what it's like now. I think that then it depends on how you define what activism is. Because for some people, it's like, oh, you should be part or affiliated with an organization that does groundwork and advocacy or things like that. You know, you're a lobbyist or things like that. That makes you an activist. But I do think that right now, the term, like, what it means to be an activist is a lot looser than it used to be. Now, if you are voicing out or like criticizing on social media platforms, it already makes you an activist because you're, you know, part of a socially conscious group of people and you are trying to spread that consciousness to like other people as well. So from my experience, I do think that yes, in the context of Malaysia, young people are more geared towards activism more than ever. I can remember it's been such a drastic change the past few years because of the political situation in the country. Initially, like I would say two years back, the people around me were not interested in activism they're like oh why are you doing this and stuff like that I don't know I'm just going to focus on my studies and then like get about with life and whatnot so no one could really understand why I was so passionate about these things and I wanted to attend Bursay I wanted to go and like you know write about issues and you know create dissent and things like that and you know the necessity or the feeling of urgency was never there for a lot of people but now you see it happening I'm not sure maybe it's because of GE14 or it's just this general tide like you know the international climate you have a lot of like like you have like a slippery slope towards like authoritarianism at the moment you got Trump you got Duterte and things like that happening so you have young people feeling like this is not what I want like in my country or my government so I need to step up my game so I think that's why it's more active than ever. I'd actually like to add on to Natusha's point 
yeah, I think the internet plays a big role in, you know, raising many voices who then gain traction, you know, to raise that consciousness and all. But I actually think the awareness also started before Trump and Duterte. I'd like to go back to, you know, the Arab Spring, uh, which was basically triggered by very, very young men who set himself on fire. And then that triggered the student movement that basically uprooted the whole Arab world and also the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong. So I think... For Malaysia, our path to activism was relatively slow compared to these countries. But we saw that, you know, these two incidents in 2011 and 2013 were a sign of, you know, things that we as young people could do. And it's actually a very encouraging sign. Yeah. Yeah. And Arab Spring in particular was galvanized through Twitter. I remember at that time when there was a lot of noise around what was taking place and a lot of the formal, usual news platforms couldn't really confirm. They would turn to tweets from people (laughs) on the ground and they were often from young activists, you know, people who were witnessing the situations for themselves who were out there. And that definitely linked social media, which is basically at our fingertips now, to the broader political discourse. I guess that's why young people feel more drawn to it now. They feel that it's not a limited or exclusive space. What are the issues typically that move the youths? I don't think taxation, for example, taxation policies is high on the list of concerns among young people, right? So what are the things, for example, that they latch on more than others? I think now the trend is towards social justice. So there's a lot of talk on women's rights, LGBT rights, minority rights. There are small segments who are very vocal towards environmental rights also. But maybe Natusha also can give me a better idea because I view things from the political (laughs) angle. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. In fact, it's pretty true. If if you're looking at discourse on social media, yeah, it's definitely geared towards social justice and those kind of sentiments rather than policy or things like that, which I think is very much lacking and we have to tap into that sort of activism more as well rather than just social justice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just calling out on people and things yeah. like that. Yeah. One of the reasons I thought of you for this topic, Natusha, is because you just curated an exhibition on Malaysian history, right? And you were geared towards looking at alternative narratives. And one of the key features of a lot of our icons from the past is that they were activated at a very young age. So I'm thinking of Chin Peng, who joined the Communist Party at 15 or 16 or something like that, became Secretary General at 19. I mean, that's woke, right? Yeah, that's, be, that, that's really woke. <laughs> that's really woke to take up arms at that age, right? So how different is it today than before, right? Or how do you understand this trend? Is it just because it's a media thing or do we really have a different, more activated youth than before? Or is it just a technological development? I think, like, I might sound a lot like a historical determinist or materialist from this perspective, but I honestly think that from my study on, like, the activist movements or, like, political consciousness in the colonial period of Malaya, right, one thing is that we have to also take into account that a lot of the people who entered politics at a very young age who are usually coming from a very disenfranchised background. Like, it's very severe and very stark inequality in colonial Malaya. People like Chin Peng represented, like, the labour class, the working class, who were, you know, in very poor conditions and whatnot. But they also made up a large proportion of the population in Malaya. So, 
like the communist party emerged in a political vacuum where there is no one to represent the needs of the working class and how the working class were like oppressed and also to a certain extent pillaged and exploited in ways that we can't imagine today but still happens today you know and the thing is that yeah like you have that kind of desperation that the drink of desperation that propels like a lot of people to join politics at a young age the same could be said for like the PKMM Parti Kebangsaan Melayu Malaya and the kind of like young people they attracted to their youth faction which is API Angkatan Pemuda Insaf right because they are already tapping into the sense of desperation and anti-colonial resistance was the language that spoke to them so in this sense like that period there is the sense of urgency but there was a urgency towards a long-term vision which is an independent state right, and where right. they have equal rights and today it seems that there's no real overarching vision in a lot of yes, collectivism no... is more about making statements and stuff mm. like that right I was actually going to say that Natusha's point is really interesting about, you know, Chinping coming from more of the labour class because it seems like today activism in Malaysia is mostly driven by middle class youth. Yeah. And there's a sort of a disconnect, I guess, looking again from the political angle where, you know, the opposition wants to reach out to all these youths who have economic troubles. But the loudest voices who are demanding for certain policies and, you know, certain directions from the oppositions come from the middle class. So there's a real challenge, you know, in which crowd do we address? So last week I had this forum titled mm-hmm. Can the Middle Class Malaysia. I was supposed to be there, but I had food poisoning. <laughs> yeah, like... Just for the record, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm um, glad that's clarified. Anyway, go on. But it was actually very interesting during the Q&A where some people asked, you know, what are the opposition doing for the rural people? And then later on in the Q&A, there was a lady who said, I feel that the government or the opposition don't engage us middle class. So everyone is feeling a bit disenfranchised. Everyone feels like they don't have a voice and don't know where to turn to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a disconnect in you know the very different classes where they don't know how to again, you know, get back to that collectivist route and actually demand something together within a cause towards the ruling government. You know, that's one thing. But I also think that because the middle class are the least politically fragmented and, you know, this is explained to the cause of history as well. There's this really good book that I started reading by Barrington Moore on dictatorship and social democracy. And, you know, he basically talks about how, like, there's this recurrent theme of, like, bourgeois revolution, as they call it. But basically, like, how the middle class is always the most effectively organized and able to plan out a political vision. And the reason for this is, of course, because they're not as disenfranchised and marginalized. Like, the working class in general, up to this date, immigrants and whatnot in Malaysia are also very politically fragmented. They cannot demand for their rights. They don't have trade unions representing them and things like that. So, like, it is kind of disturbing also that, you know, the fact that the middle class still feel like they're not being engaged with by the political parties. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing too because that point you made about the middle class being the most able to mobilise because they have the means, perhaps they have more time in their hands, right? But at the same time, they're not as disenfranchised compared to the other social classes. I mean, that's an interesting irony, right? In the sense that, and maybe that's why it seems to me from what you described that social issues like environmentalism, gender justice, 
tend to get more traction than say class issues yeah. on a lot of like contemporary activism, mm. right? I would say that the middle class has the means but not the rage. <laughs> right, right, right. Interesting. But I don't know. Like I think I attended the forum as well. Right. I do think the rage is real, but the like whoever we depend or account for the leadership is not able to articulate our rage into something productive, mm-hmm. especially for younger people who want more. Like they want more socially just policies. They want developmental policy that is striving for more equality, you know, emphasis on human rights and things like that. Especially human rights, which is something I think is still very far from being. Yeah. All this makes me wonder if social media is necessarily the best place to do activism, right? In the sense that it helps you get noticed, but the traffic there is so rapid. And there's always new issues coming up. And before anything that was brought up previously could be handled, your attention is shifted to something new. And there's not really much debate you can do with 140 characters. Or now it's doubled, right? 280 characters. So it helps you get heard, but it doesn't help discourse. Yeah, it doesn't help discourse. Which is why I think that it's a good thing to go out there and engage in like public discussions. I like what Buku Jalanan does because, you know, they are trying to reclaim public space and push out discourses in the public space. And that's how you not only get heard, but you actually get a discussion rolling. I agree that actually on my side also, we've been doing smaller scale engagements in particular with the youth. Mm -hmm. So there's this Malaysian card game called Political, right? Mm -hmm. You guys play it. (laughs) And... While we were playing it, uh, we realised that, you know, besides being a very good, silly, fun simulation of local politics, while we were playing it, we realised that in the scheme of the game, there's no civil society, only voters. And even then, you know, as a politician in the game, you view the voters as, you know, people who tick a certain set of boxes. So if you got a card saying you are the Malay Rights Party, All you have to do is appeal to people who are Malay, conservative, and maybe live in rural areas. So that was kind of a light bulb moment for us. And we thought, let's organize a few card games to get it going. And we got our interns at the time to just invite friends and friends of friends. So it was a very small group. We had about 30 people, split them up into about three or four groups. And as the game went on, you know, we were talking and asking them, you know, what, what do you think this means? And, and I feel that kind of interaction was actually more meaningful than sometimes, you know, trying to blast out messages all the time in social media. Yeah, I think you're right. Both of you made that point where you have to extend the conversation beyond the digital sphere, you know, or else it just becomes like an echo chamber. So let's talk more about how we can do that extending in the second part of the show. But let's take a break for now. We are talking about youth activism in Malaysia today, how significant it is or not. And to do that with us, uh, Natusha Naidu and Lim Yiwei. And I'm Ahmad Fat Rahman and this is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fat Rahman, joined this week by Natusha Naidu and Lim Yiwei, who are helping us think through the current landscape of activism among Malaysian youth. And in the first part of the show, we talked about the influence of social media its potentials and limitations. And we're going to talk about where things can go from here. And one of the things that came to mind as I was listening to both of you is where youth activism can take place. We know that universities can be very stifling and we know that campus activism has been dead for 30 years now. 
public spaces are not always the most welcoming as well to student voices, student activities. So yes, we can say that online social media isn't very conducive, but where else can they go, right? So you give two examples, you have politics in games. On one hand, you have Buku Jalanan. What other examples come to mind? What other strategies should be considered? Yeah, I don't know, but that's the point. We are supposed to be like pushing that envelope and like pushing the boundaries and actually like reclaiming a lot of these spaces which are where the site of struggle and resistance are. So, you know, like, yeah, universities can be very crippling and stifling to young people. But one thing I realised is that, you know, now they have like ways of going about like, oh, you have to send like proposal of your event and get like approval from management, administration, student association or nonsense like that, right? But then there are also things where you don't have to like, I mean, just use the space. It's your space. So, you know, you can do it really unofficially. The things that we are so fixated with this idea that, oh, we need to get endorsed. We need to make sure we are following the law, things like that. But the whole point is that, you know, great things happen when we don't, like abide to status quo, right? So, but why are we so well? We I'm, I'm already in my thirties, but why are the youth <laughs> so risk averse? And Natusha, your background is very interesting. That you're studying in Nottingham right now. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, I mean, you do a lot of critical theory, and my department has the portrait of Lenin there on the door of the head before. But it's not necessarily the most uplifting or radical atmosphere either, right? Given the fact that these are supposedly more well-off students, therefore they can risk more, therefore they have less to lose, you know, so on and so forth. So why is it that even in that context, you know, where it's not subject to like direct government bureaucratic hole, that it's so lackluster? A lot of the younger people like around my age are not given like the tools to voice out dissent or provide resistance to circulating discourses. Unless it's on social media. Yeah, unless it's on social media. So, because I observed that this is like a recurrent theme and I felt that as someone, like I asked myself like, why am I able to go out there and do things and try my best to project outside of social media? Is it privilege or is it something else that... I have or I have acquired and I learned that it's something that I have acquired because of mentorship and leadership like you know I used to write like for fun just for the sake of fun and because I like expressing myself until like I went for a workshop by Dina Zaman the columnist and she actually mentored me to become a columnist and then I eventually like started writing for the Malaysian Insider and expressing my views and things like that, giving political commentary. So that's when it occurred to me that that's the thing. But that still happens online too. A lot of the column writing and all that, right? Yeah, but I mean like, I realised that that certain change, you know what I mean? Like Uh, someone is giving you like direction. There's like a maturing of your activism rather than just... So what like my project Imagine Malaysia decided to do is that we are actually planning a series of workshops based on resistance next year. And the whole idea is that it's a skills-based workshop. So it looks at what does it mean to be visually disobedient? How do you write political satire? How do you become an indie filmmaker and, you know, to showcase resistance or like dissent through your film and things like that, where it's more focused on skills rather than, you know, discussion or things like that. Yeah. So Yui, what brought you to the political route then? Because as we've just considered, the routes for social change, if you're a young Malaysian, aren't very promising. They're not that many to begin with. So is politics the answer then? Is party politics the route? 
for me, I started looking seriously into politics when I was in Hong Kong. I lived there during the Umbrella Revolution. So at that time, I was working after I finished my degree. And the ages of, you know, the main leaders like Joshua Wong was probably the most striking part for me. They were so mature politically. I think Joshua's activism started when he was about 13 or 14, when he protested against the interference of China in Hong Kong's history books. Uh, so it made me feel a bit ashamed <laughs> in the sense that, you know, here am I in my early 20s. What am I doing with myself? And why do I feel so uplifted with this movement in Hong Kong when my country can also do with such energy? So that's how I decided to come back. Why I joined party politics is because I feel that the state of politics in Malaysia is very sick right now. There needs to be a reset button. Just very bluntly put, sometimes I also have my doubts on whether the opposition is the right person to press that button. But that's why... I joined it because, you know, we always say that there are so many stupid politicians saying, you know, mindless, sexist, racist remarks. And if all the good people leave and refuse to join politics, then what is to happen with us? And this is the slight tension I have with sometimes, you know, youth eschewing politics for activism. Activism is very, 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 very crucial to our country because it gives us, you know, it gives politicians that kind of check and balance. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very concerned about youths who say, you know what, I'm not going to bother about politics. I'm going to join a soup kitchen instead. Mm -hmm. That's an example. And, you know, a soup kitchen is doing a really noble cause, but it addresses the symptoms and not the structural issues like homelessness. So I think there's a quote which goes along the lines of, when I feed the homeless, people call me a saint. When I ask where the homeless come from, they call me a, a communist. communist. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So given the situation, you believe that party politics, you have to change laws, right? And you have to be a lawmaker to change laws. And party politics allows you that path more than, say, activism or other things. I mean, but I don't want to bring out the Medica Center study because we've already talked about that. But it says that there is a sense of disillusionment. So this is interesting, right? Because earlier we talked about how Youth seem very concerned about politics. They're tweeting about politics all the time. But this hasn't translated to actual real-life mobilisation. Do you think they're justified in being jaded towards mainstream politics? Yeah, because, you know, I'm also one of those people who are disillusioned. So. <laughs> but, you know, there's something very exhausting about, like, the general political situation of the country. And also, let's take into account how a lot of... People around my age have difficulty securing jobs. I'm kind of lucky because I'm still studying, but of course it worries me seeing like my older friends having difficulty securing jobs even though they've studied and, you know, really educated, really smart people, not earning enough. The salary, like our salaries are stagnant and, you know, like cost of living is rising and things like that. So how do you expect people to like, you know, really want to go out there and engage and they're so busy trying to like survive basically? And, you know, like, disillusionment is because the sentiments of young people are not reflected in, like, political parties, you know. You have a lot of young people, like, in DAP or PKR, and they still reflect a certain, like, level of sympathy to maybe status quo beliefs or, like, you know, a lack of voice within the party as well, at least from an outsider's perspective. It could be that Malaysia, too, and there are many reasons to explain this, is still largely traditional. 
where by and large, out of 10, 8 are religious. If they're not Islamically religious, they're Christians or some other religion. Largely, we are still bound to a lot of traditional considerations, even though we might be more well-read or more you know, exposed to the world or something like that. When it comes to power, the question of power, our impulses are still traditional. I mean, that's just my sense of it. I don't but, know, I think... Yeah. Like, I might have to disagree a little bit because there's a great deviation from that. Like, look at Kaumuda and like Islamic reformism in Malaya in the 19, starting from like the early 19th century already. And you already have like such a strong articulation and you know, about power and things like that from whether it's an Islamic framework or just a secular framework. And you have like a lot of young people wanting to. Like, you know, yeah, maybe it's traditional, but like it's deviated to something much more like it's trying to adapt to modernity, right? And you do have like people doing that, but it's interesting that, yeah, that kind of vigor has like disappeared over yeah. time. Something changed in the 80s, where yeah. I think with the NEP, with the state becoming more centralized and a more capitalist culture taking root, religious revivalism, linking Islam to a more middle class sense of the world, you know, yeah. that really slowed things down, unfortunately, yeah. So I guess based on what we've gathered here, there is potential, but not quite soon. So we'll wait for that day to come. It's <laughs> <laughs> sounds so sad. <laughs> when all hell breaks <laughs> loose and we can hope for some change. I mean, social change is very, very hard, right? So if you just think about feudalism, for example, European feudalism, and how it survived for thousands of years. And even after the French Revolution, the entirety of Europe tried to invade France to stop it. I mean... It's not easy for a system to fall, right? So we can't be asking too much either. But it will be interesting to see if we can anticipate small moments of awakening and questioning, you know, as we get there. And my sense is we're slowly heading there. I mean, that's just what I gather. Any concluding thoughts? You know, just recently, Imagine Malaysia was at UK and that's the first time we've done a university-based exchange. And... Your discussion was about grand narratives and how do you build a grand narrative in Malaysia or reimagine like grand narratives because like the idea of a grand narrative is dead. Everyone's talking about, you know, fixing potholes or things like that. And, you know, not like a bigger long term vision for what it means to be Malaysian or the nation. And this is something that Imagine Malaysia tries very hard to project. And I think slowly eventually like these things will come into our understanding of politics as well over time. But we just need to start talking and we can't stop pushing and trying to get the conversation out there and get people to think about what they want out of this country. I think the grand narratives part was interesting in the sense that, you know, earlier we were talking about students talking about the Vietnam War. And even now when we talk about Trump and Duterte, we don't feel the outrage we did at the Vietnam yeah. War. I think this is part of the whole, you know, kind of pendulum swing against globalization. We're much more inward looking. And that's why, you know, activism and the youth are so fragmented now. We have to get out of our bubble. I think that's that's really, really important. You know, earlier we talked about social media and and I think one of the scarier parts of social media is, you know, I look at my Facebook and I post something and when I get lots of likes, I'm actually really scared because, you know, I'm like, have I just you know, entered an echo chamber of my own. You know, why aren't there people, when I say something controversial, you know, like scolding me and saying, you know, this is wrong, we should debate about this. We really have to, you know, step out of that bubble and be able to argue, trade ideas and debate with people who come from very different backgrounds and might not 
agree with us, like how I would probably, you know, the most glaring example would be to step out of my bubble and maybe argue with, let's say, a past supporting Islamists. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think those things have to happen more, yeah. you know. The problem in Malaysia, there's so many bubbles because they're so multicultural. So we step out one, there's like a dozen that we have to kind of go through and just more demanding different languages, different cultural sensibilities and stuff, but baby steps, I guess. So you can email the show, bfmnightschool@gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, bfmnightschool. Type that in search space, download our app, at Apple App Store and Google Play. How can we get in touch with you, Natusha, Yue? You can follow me on Twitter, <laughs> Natusha Naidu, and you can follow my project and find out more about activities. It's called Imagine Malaysia and I-M-A-G-I-N-E-D Malaysia and we have a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've got a Facebook page, uh, Lim Yue, so L-I-M-Y-I-W-E-I and I have a very small Twitter account. Sometimes I don't know what to do with it myself. But the handle is actually like good egg UA. So it's like G-U-D-E-G-G and Y-I-W-E-I. Okay. <laughs> and for reading material, I suggest two books. First book is called Digital Revolutions, Activism in the Internet Age. That's by Simon Hill. And by any media necessary, The New Youth Activism, which is an anthology of essays, among others by Henry Jenkins, and Sangita Shrestova. And they basically look at the implications of the things we've talked about. How substantial is digital activism these days, especially among youth? Is it a fad? Is it not? Is it basic? Is it woke? I don't know, right? So these are the things that you can look at if you want to go further into the topic via those books. So thanks a lot for joining the show. And hopefully we can have you on again. Once again, you were listening to me, Ahmad Fat Rahmat, alongside Natusha Naidu and Lim Yue. And this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.